Galatians 5, beginning in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Fruit of the Spirit is peace. So, wonderful illustration of this in Mark chapter 4, uh, when Jesus is, uh, has gathered his disciples and they've gotten into a boat and they've gone out on the Sea of Galilee and suddenly there's uh, a mighty wind comes up and the seas are storm-tossed like this and, and the disciples are scared to death and, and water is coming into the boat and they're afraid that the boat's going to sink and they're all going to drown and, and they wake up, Jesus, why, are, why are you, don't you care that we're about to drown? And Jesus awakens. He rebuked the wind, and he says to the sea, peace, be still. And it was still. That's a real life object lesson that Jesus gave to his disciples and that he gives to us about the Christian's experience in this world and about his own mission and what he's come to do. That storm-tossed sea represents for us our world and our experience. Uh, and it's often used that way in Scripture. In Psalm uh, 65, verse 7, it says, God stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. And he puts peoples there in parallel with the storm, the seas, and the waves. In Revelation 17, at the other end of the Bible, the waters or the seas where the prostitute, the great Babylon, is seated, are, he says, peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. These, these raging, tumultuous, chaotic seas are where we live, and, and we experience its roarings inwardly and outwardly, around us and within us. As the Charlotte Elliott hymn, Just As I Am, says, just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without. Just as, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And though we, like, like Noah in the flood, like the disciples in the storm, are in a boat of safety, we nevertheless feel the threat, don't we? And we get a bit seasick, experiencing a lack of peace 
within and without. But Jesus has come to speak over us even this morning. Peace, be still. And he's come to speak that to the world. It's the message of the angelic uh, choir in Luke chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace, goodwill with those whom he is pleased. And Jesus in Psalm 23 is the good shepherd who leads us beside the still waters. The peace of God, Christ has bought for us and has brought to us, and it is to be experienced increasingly through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we approach these fruit of the Spirit, we're, we're taking them one by one and by necessity are, are doing a, a, a bit of a topical study on them, and, and so we have to think of how to arrange them. And I, I think this morning I would like to arrange the study on peace in a Trinitarian manner because this peace that the Spirit brings to us is in its essence and in its fullness the peace of God. It is God's peace being brought into our experience. And so I've arranged it in a, in a threefold manner. The peace of God looking upward at God the Father. Peace with God looking outward from the perspective of God the Son. And peace from God looking inward from the perspective of God the Holy Spirit. First, the peace of God. And this is looking upward at God, at God's peace, our God, our God is himself the God of peace. Peace is an attribute of the one God. In Judges chapter 6 verse 24, Gideon built an altar to the Lord and he called it Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. Peace, by the way, is as Paul uses it in Galatians 5, and it's used throughout the Bible, is, uh, is talking about the idea of the Old Testament Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is, as John Frame says in his theology, theological work, The Doctrine of God, shalom is peace as opposed to war, but also completeness, wholeness, and prosperity. In other words, God, God has no man-shaped holes in his heart. He is, he is complete. He's not sick or broken. He is whole. He, he has need of nothing. He is all prosperity and the source of all prosperity. Shalom is what the Bible means when it uses this word peace. Romans 15 verse 33 refers to God as the God of peace, as does Romans 16 20 and Hebrews 13 verse 20. 2 Corinthians 13 11 refers to the God of love and peace. Uh, the, the benediction there is the God of love and peace will be with you. The benediction we often use at the end of the service from Numbers chapter 6, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's his peace. Ultimately, the peace, what peace we do and will experience is 
God's peace. Again, John Frame in the Doctrine of God says, Peace, like all blessings of salvation, makes us like God. So, he says, like all blessings of salvation, peace among men is a reflection of God's own nature. It is a divine attribute. God is completely at peace with himself We often experience struggles between contradictory impulses within. God, on the contrary, is completely in harmony with himself. Peace is an attribute of God. It's it's an attribute of God in his oneness. It's also an attribute of God in his threeness. It's a triune attribute of God. That is to say, each not only is, is God as one, a God of peace, but each member of the Trinity is at peace. The Son of God is the Prince of Peace. The Spirit uh, brings the fruit of peace. The Father who brought again the, uh, from the dead our Lord Jesus, according to Hebrews 13, 20, the Father who brought again from the Lord Jesus is called the God of peace. And of course, by implication, the Trinity is at peace within itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at perfect peace with one another. And so consequently, the the apostles' constant refrain in his letters, in their letters, are grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What this means is that this world, created by the God of peace, and which and in which this world lives and moves and has its being is destined for peace. It is the origin and the destination of this world. The prevailing absence of peace within and without is a perversion brought into this world by Satan and by sin. Ed Welch, who is a tremendous counselor and author, at the CCEF writes, believe it or not, he writes this in his book, Running Scared, which is a very helpful book uh, if you're struggling uh, for peace. He says, believe it or not, peace is the way God intended it. Danger and reasons for worry are intrusions. Shalom, I'm sorry, not Shalom, Shalom, was God's original intent for all creation. He is, after all, the God of peace, Romans 15.33. Jesus, Welch writes, is the Prince of Peace, and he is remaking all things in the direction of shalom. How could it be any other way, given that all creation is designed to reflect him? So, Pete, Peace is where we came from. Peace is where we're going to if we belong to his kingdom. The God of peace. Now let's look outward from God's perspective at peace with God. Peace, the peace of God, now peace with God. The first, the first point really sort of emphasized the Father, though not ignoring the Son or the Spirit, This point emphasizes the Son because it is by the Son of God that peace, so disrupted by sin and by Satan, is restored. The 
the fundamental problem with the world, the fundamental problem in our own hearts is war with God. It began back in Genesis chapter 3, as you know, when Adam took the forbidden fruit and did eat. And the fundamental problem with the, with the whole world is that we continually take the forbidden fruit and eat. And we see that garden scene repeated throughout Scripture. Just off the top of my head, Achan takes the forbidden fruit when he, when he takes some of the treasures of Jericho and buries it under his tent. King David takes the forbidden fruit of Uriah the Hittite, uh, Uriah's wife. Israel takes the forbidden fruit by worshiping the Canaanite gods. Eli's son take the forbidden fruit of meat that's devoted to God. King Nebuchadnezzar took the forbidden fruit of God's glory. And so we all do. And like Nebuchadnezzar, live like beasts. That hostility began back in the garden and continues. And we continue to rebel against God by by taking of that which he has put off limits for us and despising the good things that he has put on limits graciously for us. And this hostility with God, this war with God, works both ways. It runs both ways. We are hostile against God by nature without Christ. Romans 8, 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. And not just, not just the mind, but the whole being is hostile to God. Romans 1.21, our foolish hearts are darkened. Ephesians 4.18, we're darkened in our understanding. Ephesians 2.1, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 7.18, nothing good dwells within me. What we want is against God by nature. What we choose, what we do apart from repentance, are against God. Theologians call that total depravity, not because we're as depraved as we possibly could be, but every aspect of our being is depraved. Not only are we corrupt in our actions, but in our very being. We're not ju- we don't just sin, we are sinners. We have, we have a, a bad record, but we also have a bad heart. The problem is, is not with, uh, problem is not just outside of us. The problem is inside of us. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Because of our rebellion against God, not only are we humans hostile to God, but God is hostile to we humans. This hostility of God is is why we die. The wages of sin is death. This hostility of God against us is why we humans are destined apart from Christ for hell. God, Psalm 7 says, is a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, the psalmist writes, God will wet, that means sharpen his sword, He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrow fiery shafts. In other words, this is not a God who's in a defensive posture with us. This is a God who is hostile against those who have 
rebelled against his will. Colossians 3.6 says that on account of our sins, the wrath of God is coming. And this hostility of God against sinners is also the reason of the cross. Romans 3.25, God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means an appeasing, a satisfying of the just wrath and anger of God against hell-deserving sinners. This, this long war with God is why the world at every level, without and within, is not at peace. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, God, the offended party, has through his son taking, taken decisive action to end the war. He, do, he doesn't just establish a truce. He makes a just peace and a real peace. So Romans 5.10, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Romans 5.11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's reconciliation. There's a story that's told of a time during Oliver Cromwell's reign as the Lord Protector of England back in the 1600s. There was, a, there was a young soldier who was condemned to die for some egregious offense. And this young soldier had a, uh, had a fiancé, a beautiful young fiancé. Bessie was her name. And, uh, and, and Bessie pleaded with Cromwell to spare the life of her beloved fiancé, but to no avail. And this, this man was to be executed at the sounding of the curfew bell. Bell was rung each night, and the sound of this particular uh, of the curfew bell on this particular night, this man was to be executed. And so, at the appropriate moment, the sexton of the church comes to the to the church uh, bell tower to ring the bell, as he does every night. And he grabbed the rope and he began pulling it repeatedly. But this time, no sound was heard. Uh, well, the sexton didn't know there was no sound heard. He was old and very deaf, apparently. Uh, so he kept ringing. Well, the young, the young woman had climbed the bell tower, finding no other way to avoid this execution, wrapped herself around the clapper of the bell. And as the sexton pulled and pulled, her body is pummeled and pummeled and pummeled against the side of that bell, bruised and bloodied. After the bell stopped ringing, she climbed down and went to the place of the execution and uh, Cromwell had just come riding up. And she explained what she had done. And, and uh, what she had done so overwhelmed Cromwell that he pardoned the young man. Well, a poet captured the scene later with these words. At his feet she told her story, showed her hands all bruised and torn, and her sweet young face, still haggard with the anguish it had worn, touched his heart with sudden pity, lit his eyes with misty light. Go, your lover lives, said Cromwell. Curfew shall not ring tonight. 
a beautiful story. But that truth is, that last statement is true for everyone who trusts in Christ. Curfew will not ring tonight. And not, not because God is overwhelmed with sentimentality at the sacrifice of his son. It's not merely that his eyes were lit with misty light, but because his son, bruised and bleeding, went all the way to death and hell on behalf of the accused. It's not a sentimental peace that we have. It's a just peace, a righteous peace. So Colossians 1.21, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And this reconciliation, this peace of God, then becomes the foundation and the catalyst of our peace with one another and our peace within. And that leads us to our third and last point, peace from God, which is inward by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, this ministry of the Holy Spirit is, first of all, inward within the Christian himself or herself. Within, within us who trust in Christ, there is this ministry of the Holy Spirit bringing the very peace of God because of peace with God into our very experience. So Romans 8, 6 says, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Colossians 3, 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This peace, this inward peace, this is, this is what most of us want most of the time, and the absence of which makes us crazy. This is why we go to counselors, usually. You know, hardly anybody comes into my office saying, Tim, what I really need is to love somebody better. Usually, usually what brings us for help is, I don't have peace, and I need peace, and I want peace, and what will give me this peace? And the provision of the peace that we need is not through a learned technique. It is the very, it is the bringing of the very peace of the triune God himself into the reconciled heart of the believer by the Holy Spirit whose ministry to us was purchased by the blood of Christ. That's the peace that we desperately need. But that ministry of the Holy Spirit is accessed by us only through faith in Christ. That, that's Paul's main point in these verses. See, be, being led by the flesh to trust in our own law-keeping, what does it do? It energizes the flesh to produce the works of the flesh, which is all kinds of lacking peace. But when we trust wholly in Christ alone, we are led by the Spirit, not under the law, and that, 
that spirit that then that faith then energizes the production of the fruit of the spirit including peace this is an organic thing it's a relational experience being rooted in Christ by faith alone the life-giving sap of the holy spirit then produces and pushes out within us the sweet fruit of peace. That's why Ed Welch can say, again in his book Running Scared, if you are finding peace, and he means inner peace here, if you are finding peace elusive, this is a very bold statement. I really had to think whether I'd whether I believe this is saying too much. But I think he's right. He said, if you're finding peace elusive, either you still don't believe you are forgiven or you don't really care that you are. Why? Because peace is a fruit of the Spirit that comes in response to faith in Christ, what He's done for us, to work reconciliation and forgiveness. That's essentially our issue. And if that's our issue, what what are we to do? Well, listen, yoga and mindfulness are not going to give us that kind of peace. What is the answer? In the words of the Father in Mark's Gospel, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The working out of that answer to that prayer may take time, probably will take time, may be helped by good counsel, often is helped by good counsel, but it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit unleashed by faith in Christ alone that is ultimately the need. You know, a good a good sermon and a longer sermon would get in at this point probably to hindrances to peace. There are hindrances and promotions of peace. How how to really work to promote the peace of God in our in our lives and and that's needful and that's helpful. But the point I just want to get across this morning to you is that the peace that we long for is a product of the Holy Spirit through faith. Now, I'm not trying to condemn anybody for having a lack of faith. I have a lack of faith. We all have a lack of faith. Not an absence of faith. But what we need more than anything else is to trust what this word tells us that Jesus Christ has died for sinners like you. And that God loves you. And that he has adopted you as a child into his family and that he will keep you and that he is doing good. And nothing but good in the midst of the trials of your life. Believe that. And we will find 
bit by bit, day by day, that the Holy Spirit gives us a peace that's beyond natural. People can get a natural kind of peace temporarily for techniques, through techniques. But really, what good is it in the end? We want not only present peace, but eternal peace, don't we? Peace within the individual Christian. But there's another aspect of this peace that I'll, I'll end with. And that is peace within the church of Christ. Peace with one another within the church of Christ. That's what Ephesians 4 is all about. When, when Paul writes there, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's saying the Spirit has wrought a unity among us by uniting us to Jesus, each one uniting us into the body of Christ so that we are one, grafting us, as it were, as branches from dead trees into the tree of life. And by that engrafting, all experiencing the blessings of the sap of that Holy Spirit, uniting us together. And Paul says now, be diligent to preserve that peace. And that, that means, doesn't it, we have a responsibility. And Paul tells us how to preserve, how to, how to exercise that responsibility as he goes on in chapter 4. It says in chapter 4.15 of Ephesians, speaking the truth, that is the gospel, in love to one another. Chapter 4, verse 22, put off the old self, that is the former corrupt lifestyle. Why? Because it destroys the peace that the Spirit has wrought. Uh, chapter 4, verse 25, speak truth, for we are members of one another. Ephesians 4, 26, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Resolve your conflicts, lest the devil get a foothold. We'll destroy peace. Ephesians 4, 28, share with one another as God has provided Ephesians 4.29, speak grace-giving words to one another that build up one another. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Peace is sustained and promoted as we exercise, as we strive in these ways to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of now, Ed Welch says here again, if you want peace, you must pursue peace. He's talking about inner peace here again. If you want peace inwardly, you must pursue peace outwardly. Uh, and that's what Paul means in, in Galatians, back to Galatians 5, verse 25, when he says, uh, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That is, we are to willingly, purposefully live in harmony with the fruit of the Spirit. So Ed Welch says there is a feedback loop in the kingdom. When we respond to God's grace by making peace with others, he gives us more peace. He says, do you want to know peace? Study the peace giver and make peace. Then he will give you even more. 
He gives us peace. We make peace. He gives us more peace. We make more peace. He gives us more peace. You see? It's really hypocrisy to pray for inner peace while we are maintaining war with God or with one another. Inner peace does enable us to make peace with others, but peace with others, God first, also promotes inner peace. So peace, the peace of God, peace with God, peace from God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The entry point into that feedback loop of peace, the entryway into the gateway of the kingdom of peace, to put it in other terms, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, that's what's being pictured when Jesus stands up in the boat and cries, peace, be still. He's anticipating a time when the disciples would go out as in a boat, as in an ark, into the chaos of this world and preach Christ crucified. And what happens when that gospel is preached? Men and women beat their swords into plowshares. Lions begin to lie down with children. And the raging seas become placid. Peaceful bodies of water. And in the end, the church of Christ, the body of Christ, will have perfect peace. That's why Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the sea was no more. He's not giving us a photographic image of the future. He's telling us, that the gospel will bring perfect peace. I haven't talked about peace in the world. That's what Revelation 21 is, is picturing, peace in the world. There will never be peace among the unbelieving nations until Christ reigns supreme and every knee bows. But in the church, in the church we have a vision, a little vision, a little foretaste of the peace that is coming. Brothers and sisters, trust in Christ. Look to Christ. Set your minds on things above. Let's give this world a foretaste of what it longs for. Let's live in peace. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus, thank you for working peace with God. Thank you for working peace between rebels who are hostile to God and a God who is hostile to rebels. Thank you for working peace in the hearts of sinners whose hearts were turbulent seas of chaos. Thank you for bringing a taste of that peace into the church as we forgive one another, as we confess to one another, as we love one another, as we speak words of peace 
to one another. Our Father, we pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would strengthen and increase that unity of peace. I pray it even now. Amen.